Hello and welcome to Cybertech Talks, a podcast hosted by Cress, where we bring cybersecurity experts together to share their expertise. In this episode, you'll hear from Greg Francis, a cybercrime prevention specialist, and Rob Harris, a cybercrime subject matter expert and consultant. With their law enforcement backgrounds, they talk about the landscape of cybercrime today, how you can't police it in the traditional way, and they break down the UK 4P strategy to protect, prepare, prevent and pursue. We hope you enjoy this very first episode. Hi everybody, my name is Greg Francis. Um, I am the Managing Director of 4D Cybersecurity and I specialise in cybercrime offender prevention. I have a background in law enforcement, um, an investigator with customs, um, the National Cybercrime Unit with the NCA and the Serious Organised Crime Agency. And I'm also a justice of the peace um, as a magistrate and I've been performing those public duties um, on and off for about 30 years. Um, that's me and uh, I'll hand you over to my colleague, um, Rob Harris. Thanks, Greg. Uh, my name's Rob Harris. Uh, I spent over 30 years in law enforcement as a police officer. Um, started back in the 1980s before technology was really a thing. Um, took me through the next 30 years of seeing the rise in technology and obviously in the last sort of 10 to 15 years, the rise of cybercrime. Very fortunate for the last decade to become involved in that cybercrime uh, arena. Uh, and I spent the last 10 years of my service uh, helping to build the capability within the UK, which included uh, capability at a regional level, capability at a local level, and also capability at a national level, uh, and had the pleasure of working with Greg on many occasions around the sort of national strategy to do with Prevent and lots of the other P's, which we'll talk about in a bit more detail. Um, the last couple of years, I retired in uh, 2019 from policing. I know I don't look old enough, but there you go. Uh, and uh, I've been able to uh, carry on working uh, in this arena, uh, worked for the National Police Chiefs Council for a while, and I'm now working as an uh, independent cybercrime subject matter expert and consultant. So, Greg, we've got um, two or three talking points that we spoke about beforehand, um, and I think the first one's a really pertinent one, which you'd sort of like brought up as cybercrime today, which, you know, there's some great points in there around what the digital landscape now looks like. So can you just um, perhaps kick off a little bit? Maybe uh, we could sort of talk around what you see as the issues around the main parts just at the moment. Yeah, so thanks for, for that, Rob. Um, yeah, it's quite interesting. I've just returned from um, a cybersecurity conference in Prague and the one of the most consistent themes was, of course, ransomware and the proliferation of ransomware over the last over the last five to five to ten years how it's evolved and grown and how the a significant amount of businesses are affected by ransomware attacks and from a law enforcement perspective how the starting point seems to be for many of the businesses when they engage with law enforcement to actually just pay pay the fine or negotiate the fine and um it, it's it's quite an unsettling um, position for for me who come from a cybercrime background and a law enforcement one that that's our starting point but if that is not indicative of just a sheer volume of cybercrime and the problems we have with its borderless nature the difficulties of securing prosecutions then I don't know what is so 
in a nutshell, Rob, um, I would say that um, for, for, from, from a public perspective, we have significant issues with ransomware attacks, but there's also the remote working aspects and so many people now working at home and um, the, the necessity to raise public awareness about um, securing their, you know, their, 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 their domestic infrastructure and networks and having an understanding of exactly how invariably at the center of all cybercrime is a human factor. And um, no matter how technical the bad guys might be, they invariably depend on us, the general yeah. public, to do something we probably shouldn't. So I started my, my, um, my um, presentation last week with cybercrime is rising, the offenders are getting younger, and we, we're having problems, we cannot arrest our way out of this problem. And I suppose that sums up for me how I see the current cybercrime landscape. Yeah, no, it's a really important point. You know, I mentioned in my sort of intro there that I've been kicking around uh, policing and law enforcement since the late 1980s. And, you know, you kind of look at where we've gone in those three decades and it's just unrecognisable. You know, we've gone from technology having very little to do with policing and law enforcement to actually the biggest chunk of it now. And if you look in the UK, uh, you'll see that actually when you put technology and cybercrime together in terms of a crime type, you're most likely to suffer a crime of some description which involves technology, whether that be fraud and technology or whether it be pure cybercrime. Um, so, you know, it's become the, the biggest um, sort of offence and threat that we're facing today. And the interesting point that you make there about you can't arrest your way out of it, that is a really, really good point because when you kind of look at the way traditional policing has gone, um, you kind of start to see a break away from some of the earlier tactics which would have been sound for many, many years in policing. You know, when I was a young detective, I remember going to detective training school and they used to teach us the investigative triangle. And the investigative triangle was that three-way link between your location, your victim and your offender. Well, you mentioned it, you know, it's a global thing, isn't it, cybercrime? How on earth do you now start to make that link? You know, you've got victims that have absolutely no relationship whatsoever with offenders and neither of them have got any kind of correlation to any sort of location other than it being the internet. And crikey me, the internet's an awfully big place, isn't it? And, you know, that point about you can't arrest your way out of it, you know, legislation issues start to bring themselves into it. So, you know, you look at the UK and we're still using legislation for some parts of our criminal justice system, which date back to the 19th century. And some of it goes back even further when you start talking about common law. So, of course, how on earth do you make that work? You know, I'm not saying that those bits of particular legislation aren't fit for purpose, but when you start talking about technology, it really does start to push what you traditionally would have thought of in law enforcement and the way that you do tackle these issues. And you're absolutely right there, Greg, is there's no way that you can arrest your way out of it, which is where you start coming into strategies, tactics, having the right approach to it being the holistic solution, you know, tackling the causes rather than trying to tackle the crime itself because it's just... Totally agree. Totally agree, Rob. And, you know, you, you really touched on something there about the how you learn to investigate and how, how cybercrime today manifests itself. And that, that, um, that aspect of the, of the, the, the accessibility of, of um, cyber, cyber tools that can be used um, for committing cybercrime acts 
is really quite key because, you know, we've worked in law enforcement from, um, you know, at the highest level, working, you know, across the, across the, across the pond, across the borders for different types of crime types. And what you realise is with cybercrime, you can become, you can go international immediately. Any other crime type, it takes invariably years to build up the capability, the the contacts, the credibility to actually start operating at the highest level. But cybercrime, you can go with your with the right understand of how the network works, that criminal network works, and even with the right technical abilities, you can be international as soon as you open your laptop. Yeah. And that is something that's quite scary. And to compound the issues, we also have victims who actually are more worried about reputation than tangible loss to their business, which is a perverse dynamic. Mm. And there's not much we can do about that because we understand the rationale behind it. And so it's, well, yeah, we, 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 we get it. From a law enforcement, law enforcement perspective, we recognise that it might actually be easier for you to do what we would advocate not to do in the, in the offline world. So it's... Cyber, cyber crime is something um, that I always impress upon friends and people I talk to in general that it's the it's the it's the most perverse type of crime out there because it's one of the only areas one of the only areas where the actual victims, especially if they're institutions or businesses, actually are not to are not waving a flag always to have um, their breaches and their and their hacks investigated. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, it doesn't sit right. I spent 20-odd years in traditional law enforcement before I kind of came across to the technology and cybercrime side of things. And, you know, the point you make about international inquiries, I bet in those 20 years I became involved in a handful of cases that would have involved any kind of international jurisdiction. And within, you know, months of starting in the cybercrime world, you know, the first four, five, six, seven, eight cases that we dealt with, every single one of them have got some kind of an international and multi-international sort of element to them. Yeah. Because, you know, you talk about the jurisdictional bit, you can't arrest your way out. You know, you sat as a, as a UK police officer in, say, Birmingham, and you may well have just done a warrant on a bad guy who you know has been committing all sorts of naughtiness over the internet. And, you know, you manage to get in there, you catch him live on a computer, you drag them away from the keyboard, you then sat in front of a keyboard looking at live connections to where, you know, they're not in the UK anymore, you know, they could be, I don't know, you're in America, you talk about cloud stuff that might be in China, you know, you see, it really does present the issue that does push law enforcement. And that point that you made about victims and their motivation behind what they need to do next does become really, really important on that. And this is where that kind of multi-approach come in, doesn't it, from us? Uh, I say from us, I'm talking about from the law enforcement perspective that, you know, first of all, we've got to recognise that there are those issues, you know, that when we step into a potential crime scene with a victim at the other end of it, that that victim may not be presenting in the way that we would traditionally think. You know, they're not a burglary victim, they're not a victim of, of um, sexual offence or violent crime. It's a very different dynamic that comes into play with it. And I think, you know, the policing gets it. You know, you can hear both me and Greg talking about it now. We both get it. And, you know, generally policing that's involved in the technology side, the specialists involved in cybercrime do get it. And that's where, you know, we've been, over the last 10 years, and you've been involved in this, Greg, as well, haven't you, trying to encourage people to come forward and report. No matter what your 
ultimate aim or your ultimate goal may well be is we cannot do this. Policing, law enforcement cannot do it on its own. We need to know about this. It's one of those very few crimes that actually, and it, it pains me to say it, but policing is not best placed to understand it properly. Um, so, you know, there are a handful of specialists in each force and regionally and nationally across the country. But actually, the people that know what's going on and understand it the best are probably out in the industry. And this is where when you start talking about your tactics and the way that you approach these things and the way that you start to tackle this, it becomes a much wider issue. Um, you know, it isn't just about policing. I was telling Greg a story when we spoke last time about when I first joined policing in the late 1980s, early 1990s. Car crime was a huge issue back then. And my first car in 1985, I think it was, was a Mark II Ford Escort. And my mate had a Mark I Ford Capri. His car key fitted and started my car. My car key fitted and started his car. Now, that's not anything to do with policing, is it? That's an industry issue. So it was easy to do. It was easy to commit. So the consequence of that, and there's obviously a lot of other issues as well that sort of forced it into that, but the consequence of that was you had a huge amount of car crime. I spent, you know, the first five years of my policing service chasing car criminals. As exciting as that may be for a young man, there was clearly an issue there. Now, that issue wasn't solved by the police. Yes, we chased the offenders around. Yes, we arrested them. Yes, we put them before courts and the criminal justice and courts did, did their bit as well. But actually, the way that that was stopped was through pressure on industry. And that wasn't just a policing issue, you know, it was a much wider issue. So I think we're probably much in the same area with this thing as well, aren't we, Greg, is that there's probably more to this solution than just policing, isn't there? And Rod, Rob, Rob, that is such a key point. Um, when I started as a magistrate in 94, I used to have to deal with TDAs continually, continually, just reams and reams of it, all day, all day long, taking and driving away. Yeah, taking, taking, away. taking and driving away. That's it. TDAs taking and driving away. Offense after offense after offense. By the and then I just by the early two thousands, it weren't there anymore. It literally disappeared almost. And you know when you spoke about it offline um, a couple of weeks ago, thought, I thought to myself that's so true. And it also is indicative of how this is a holistic approach and and with that when we look at the way that we were charged with and that we and the way the UK is charged with investigating cybercrime recognizing for the 4p approach which of course Rob you know you um, you implemented through the cybercrime team in the, the West Midlands it's a it is a very progressive way of dealing with things and there is in there is industry engagement built into all aspects of it but I think the only aspect I would amplify more would be the importance of raising public awareness. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about it later and, and building the prevent profile of the 4P approach to, um, to ensure that, that, um, that industry and business recognise that they actually can have a much more forceful impact on the cybercrime landscape by actually going backwards instead of forwards. And I don't mean going backwards in regards to technology, but going backwards in regards to what society needs to evolve and develop. And um, yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But I quite like, Rob, 
if um if uh you could give um just our our viewers those watching just a quick overview of the 4p approach and how it has it is deemed quite progressive and is now embraced by a number of other countries for a way to deal with serious organized crime yeah absolutely so 4p as the name suggests is it's four p's which is protect prepare pursue and prevent this actually came out of, the original concept of it came out of um, counter-terrorism policing. Um, and it was something that CT, the counter-terrorism world, started on. Um, but when the cybercrime strategy started to be discussed within the UK, um, it was clear that this was a very good, wider, all-encompassing strategy that would transfer very easily across into the cyber world as well. And it's actually been, I would say, probably pushed more in the cyber world, certainly as holistic all four Ps, than probably the way that it is in counter-terrorism, while it's obviously a little bit under the radar and a little bit quieter in counter-terrorism, whereas we've been shouting about it a lot more in cyber. So if we start with protect, so if you think about protect, that's about providing uh, information and strategies for people to be able to protect themselves, to be able to stop themselves from becoming victims in the first place. Um, and there's a wider whole strategy around each one of these P's, which the UK government has um, sort of implemented. And that transfers across into law enforcement that, if you look at just about every single cybercrime law enforcement team across the country, whether that be at local, regional, national, whether it be policing, whether it be uh, the National Crime Agency, whether it be any associated government agencies, they all organise themselves now into these four Ps. So that's the protect side. The prepare side is talking about, well, what happened? What about when it does happen? And the reality is, is we have to accept that it probably will. There's no way that we are actually going to stop all of it. You know, we have to be realistic about this and accept that at some point, you either as an individual or as a business are probably going to be subject to some kind of cyber offence. So the prepare aspect of this is saying, well, get yourself ready. What are you going to do when it does happen? How are you going to make sure that you can minimise the impact of it? How are you going to make sure that you can uh, rebound back from this and protect the most important aspects of your business or your life? The pursue side of it, relatively straightforward, I suppose, from a law enforcement perspective. It is traditional law enforcement. You know, you've got to have, as the cops, you've got to be able to go and catch a bad person doing something naughty somewhere. So that's the pursue angle of it is about the police being ready to be able to go identify the criminals and either catch them or disrupt or divert them away. And on the disruption and divert side is the prevent side, which, of course, Greg, is your particular forte and your specialism, which is about trying to prevent people from becoming involved in cyber criminality in the first place, or if they are involved or have become so involved that they have set their path out that that's what they want to do, that you have a strategy within that prevent that then starts to divert, degrade, um, disrupt them and stop them from becoming or being um, as uh, impactive as they possibly were to begin with. And I think on that aspect, I think you've got within that prevent, uh, I think you talk about the 4D side of things as well, don't you, Greg? You've got a 4D strategy in there. Yeah, um, yeah, thanks for that. And, of course, um, the 4D concept that, um, that I, I, I like to utilise from, um, from, my, from, my, um, from my approach to, a, to um, cyber offender prevention is um, effectively to deter and divert those interested and entering cybercrime. So we're talking about the low end there, those who are coming into it or interested in it. And then at the, more to the top end to degrade and disrupt 
those committed to cybercrime. So it's a it's a it's a broad approach that um, focuses on looking at exactly who's who you know from a prevent perspective, from a four P perspective, who actually is attacking us, who is it that's doing it, and then ensuring that those who are attacking us are in an informed position to make a decision about what they do with their understanding and and um, of the law of the of the criminal landscape and the implications of their behavior. And the reason that this this deter and divert aspect became so prominent within the prevent part of the 4P approach was because the, the National Crime Agency and, and, and with, with focus on the National Cybercrime Unit, it, it focused, focused primarily on cyber-dependent crime. So, it does do cyber-enabled crime, but cyber-dependent cyber crime is effectively the new crimes and new techniques. So um, the, the technical um, understanding of individuals and their ability to utilise technology to impact on technology. And that aspect found that the agency was focusing on, oh, sorry, not just focusing, we weren't just focusing on that, but found ourselves arresting a disproportionate amount of people who were considerably younger than the normal types of individuals we dealt with for serious crime. And that emphasis and those um, laid, laid a, or opened up a, a world of questions when they were when they were arrested and interviewed because there was always conventional motivations for them getting involved in cybercrime, which are invariably money, money or malicious intent. But sometimes it was simply just they wanted to see if they could get in. And from a from a, my perspective as a magistrate, I was very much perplexed by how actually this would work as considerable mitigation because they are not getting the same interventions that their offline counterparts would get. Once they're interested in coding and and, and in um, in programming and scripts, no one can regulate them in their domestic environments. And even at school, some of the teachers would struggle to actually tailor their trajectory of their interest in the right way. So this became quite an interesting part of my journey from being an investigator to working in prevention. And on the back of that, um, we there was a number of really key individuals that were spoken to who had been offended, offending and had been arrested by law enforcement who gave their time and their insight into their journeys into cybercrime to enable us to start developing interventions. And I think that aspect, that deter and divert aspect is paramount to ensure that law enforcement is able to focus on those who are committed to cybercrime, not those who have become cyber criminals just, just through interest and then progressing in because of the low perception of risk of actually getting caught because a lot of people do not get caught. Yeah, and that's a really important point, isn't it, Greg? And it's something that's been, you know, right at the forefront of certainly law enforcement strategy in the UK for, well, pretty much from day one, hasn't it? And it's been recognised. It's back to those Peelian principles. So Robert Peel came out with his nine principles, didn't yep. he? Uh, the ninth principle being, I think I've got them somewhere, hold on. So get it word for word. The ninth principle being the test of police efficiency is in the absence of crime and disorder, <laughs> not the visible evidence of the police action in dealing with it. So it's about trying to stop it in the first place. And a really yeah. big point of it is, is, is that, that very point that you make there, that, that uh, misconception 
uh, that actually there's no risk involved in this, so I'll just start doing something small. And by starting to do something small and figuring that you've probably got away with it, nobody said anything to you, then you try something else. And so you end up with this you know, perverse bit where people almost falter into cybercrime when they could actually be concentrating on getting their skills honed properly and getting into the industry and become one of the good guys, if I can put it that way. Which, you know, when you kind of look at... I mean, you were talking, weren't we, the last time that we spoke, that um, you see it a lot, that corporate responsibility is really um, evident now, isn't it? In the last sort of five to ten years, there's been yeah. a lot of big corporations, and also small as well, that have recognised that there's something there to give back and the community spirit sometimes is something there that they want. And that corporate responsibility is there in a lot of very visible other aspects of um, community and culture and crime. Uh, I suppose the obvious ones, if you think about it, are things like, I don't know, big banking or, I don't know, local football clubs becoming involved in youth diversionary um, sort of uh, programmes which concentrate on things like getting youth off the street and maybe knife crime or something like that. But I think you made the point to me, didn't you, that if you were to talk about, well, what about cybercrime then? Does anybody know where their local coding club might be? Has anybody got a, a local coding club? Or big business and corporation who are being victims, you know, they are falling victim themselves to this. Are they actually starting to get involved in it? But there are some very good examples of it. You know, I'm not saying that this isn't happening. There are some very good examples of it. But I don't think we're quite there yet, are we, Greg? And I think there could probably be more of a push on that side. Yeah. I mean, I... I... You know how how um, how passionate I feel about that aspect, that key aspect there, um, Rob. Because we we normalise activities for our children wherever we are in the in the country, wherever in the world, whether it's football, whether it's dance, whether it's Qmon classes, whatever whatever their interest is, especially if they've got any a developed interest, we know where to send them. But we're in a digital age with Digital natives, people who are born into a digital society with no real con connect, tangible connectivity to the analog world that we come out of, Rob, and they've evolved into this digital one. And um, if I was to go out, and just out, out of my door now and ask people, where is your local coding or tech club? They would say, what the hell is that? And you ask yourself, how can that not be normalised? How can't that just be a normal resource when there are so many young people who have interest and and also those those who, with highly skilled individuals out there who actually are completely unregulated and are unaware of exactly where those skills can take them, not until they get to 16, 17, 18, they may get an idea of, you know, they could do ethical hacking, they could do cybersecurity, they could do threat analysis. And this is where... The, the, the business can come in because they need those skills, they need those individuals, and they could actually um, consider, consider um, contributing, sponsoring, providing some sort of assistance to, um, to their local area because, because they can actually steer individuals in the right way to make sure that they are always in an informed position about what they do with their interest and their skills as soon as they go online. And I would like to see that normalised in the same way other resources are out there for talented young people. So slightly earlier, Greg, you mentioned about pure cybercrime. Uh, 
probably worth mentioning at this point that in the UK we sort of give it a definition. I don't know whether that's policing generally that like to give things definitions, but um, we certainly have two separate um, sort of categories of what we call different cybercrime, one being cyber-dependent crime, one being cyber-enabled crime. Now, you mentioned the cyber-dependent crime. Now, there's an actual definition of that in the UK. Um, now, we define that as crimes where the device are both the tool for committing the crime and also the target of the crime. So that, as you quite rightly say, is the bit where the technology, hitting technology kind of thing comes in. And of course, we'd, we'd essentially categorise those as being new crime, if that makes sense. Cyber-enabled crime is where we look at old offences, so things like maybe fraud, uh, that have just been industrialised by the use of technology. So it's an old crime that's just enabled through cyber. And the reason I think that it becomes important to understand those two different aspects of it is... I suppose a little bit around where do you put your resourcing. There's going to be a little bit around how much training and um, sort of technology do you need to put into that yourself. So it's probably important just that we've sort of clarified that 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 sort of side of things. And the kind of legislation piece becomes an important bit as well, doesn't it? That you know I spoke earlier about um, you know the fact that the UK relies a little bit on technology. I'm sorry on um, uh, uh, crimes that were sort of enacted back in the 1800s uh, but are still used today. Some of the stuff which we uh, had got on our books obviously was okay and could still be used but of course some of it wasn't and you do end up with those 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 sort of head scratch moments of you know it, you've, you've got something which clearly feels like a crime, it smells like a crime, it sounds like a crime but you may not actually have some some piece of actual legislation that could cover it and that becomes an important aspect, I think, when law enforcement in particular start to consider how do they sort of corral themselves and get themselves ready for the digital future. Um, but I suppose it's also probably worth mentioning, we talked about the strategies, and I was just thinking, sort of mulling over in my head then as we were talking about what does this mean to industry? And I suppose in terms of trying to give industry the confidence to report, which is another point that we were just talking about, wasn't it? It's about that confidence in understanding that the police are going to be or law enforcement is going to be capable of actually a understanding the offense that may have been committed against you as a victim and also have the ability to be able to meet your wishes but also potentially pursue offenders or disrupt offenders in the future and um i i was i was asked a while ago by a finance company to give them some advice around what they should be doing internally and we just spoke about the four p's and i actually said to them well a, you need a strategy, but B, you ought to look at the strategy that law enforcement uses because there's no reason why you can't adapt that and adopt it, sorry, adopt it and adapt it into something that would fit your own organisation. Um, yeah, actually that working, is very true. Yeah, working it through with them, we were able to come up with a strategy that actually worked internally for them as a private organisation. So. Those, I think, are all sort of important points to sort of push around this as well. When you start talking about, you know, that, that um, sort, sort of corporate engagement, the partnership approach side of things. Um, so that's probably worth bearing in mind, I think, for it. That normalising the digital yeah. reprehensibility, which is, I think, is something that you'd spoke about before as well, wasn't it, Greg? And you were just talking then about how do you start to engage the younger people, but not only the younger people, how do we get society as a whole to sort of um, become involved and engaged and invested in some way into what is really um, your own digital responsibility. You know, it's not just about corporate, is it? 
Yeah, it isn't. It's um, it's recognizing that we've all got a part to play in this because we're all affected by it. And I think that by raising the public awareness of exactly what the issues are with law enforcement, the easy accessibility of criminal tools, the fact that the landscape that the that that we all trundle onto is in many respects unregulated. Um, last week at the at the conference, I was saying it's the Wild West, and unless you ride into town and rob a bank, the the sheriff is not coming, because the landscape is so wide. So, you know, unless they regulate, actually, that there's an, there needs to be an element of self policing, of by individuals once they go on there, where we we set a standard about how we engage and what we're allowed to do, and that there is an understanding across the digital landscape about what is acceptable and what isn't. And that's where corporations can help, especially the search engine providers who've got an incredibly difficult job to manage manage their platforms, but also recognize that because they they have a difficult job it doesn't mean that that it shouldn't be done and you've and you've seen in the re- last few weeks um, the EU commission launched the digital the digital services act which is looking at putting emphasis on search engine providers to better manage their pl- platforms and be more accountable the search engine providers seem at first instance to be very receptive to how they can move forward with the commission and other agencies to do that. And it's consolidated by the UK Online Harms Bill, which is also tailored in the, in the same way to bring um, accountability to the fore for managing platforms and products that are sold on there that have that have a criminal nature and uh, and a, and a criminal and criminal intent, and that's where this sort of holistic approach can be of real value. Where, as you've seen with um, environmental, with the environmental campaign, once the public become aware of exactly how crime evolves um, from from a um, low level activity to full blown, uh, you know, national infrastructure attacks and realize that law enforcement only engages with real with real credibility at the top end that they have a part to play in informing their own, informing their children, informing their friends around them that actually we've all got a part to play. The the search engine providers, the companies that need the resources that are going onto these on onto the net, making sure that they know exactly what is out there what the um, trajectories their their inquiries can take and what the full implications of their inquiries will be if they choose to take a, a, a more deviant path and also informing them on what their skills and abilities and where their skills and abilities can take them legitimately. And that was what became quite pronounced when I was debriefing and talking to people who were arrested for serious cyber crimes and them realizing and saying to me, Officer Francis, I only really knew about the scope of what is I'm able to do once I got arrested. My, the rabbit hole I went down in, into that ended me getting arrested did not provide me with the 
with the insight and information that I needed to make an informed choice. And I certainly weren't going to get that from my parents because I had such a strong element of control and power, I could tell them anything. You know, they wouldn't know. They, I'd say, oh, I'm building a game with my friends and they'd see all these numbers on my screen and they were just like, you know, my child's a genius. So there needs to be more uh, connectivity between the users of the of uh, the, the digital landscape and those who need those with the skills to manage the digital landscape and to progress it. And I think once that can be coordinated and, and uh, normalized as a discussion piece, then you will see far more traction in the whole digital responsibility aspect of, uh, of technology, but also more acceptance that this is not a law enforcement problem. We are just dealing with the sausage that comes out the end of the sausage machine. You know, all the stuff that goes in at the top, we can't deal with. I think probably now the last piece that we've probably got to cover now is the CMOD stuff, isn't it, Greg? Is we could sort of segue into that piece, couldn't we? So we were both approached by Crest, weren't we? Um, probably two years ago now, it probably goes back, doesn't it? And they've got a project on which to do with improving the digital lives of people in probably less invested areas of the world, which traditionally was looking at the wider aspect of cyber security in a country. But of course, you put any kind of word cyber into any conversation and there's a throw off for an aspect to that, which includes the cyber security and cyber crime aspect of things, doesn't it? So I think, Greg, you became involved first with it, didn't you? You got, got approached around the prevent side of things. Yes. Yeah, so um, interestingly enough, you know, on the back of what we were talking about earlier around um, corporate digital responsibility and how they can contribute to the cybercrime landscape, Crest were, were, Crest were well ahead of the game in, in, uh, in many respects because we approached them, and that's the National Cybercrime Unit Prevent Team, back in 2013 on the back of... Um, some debrief we'd done with individuals who'd been arrested for serious cybercrime and gave them an outline of um of what the what their pathway was into what their pathways were what their pathways were into cybercrime and asked um um Ian Glover at the time whether he felt that there would be any resonance with those who were in the ethical hacking industry legitimately whether they saw similar had similar pathways and he he invited us to conduct a workshop with um crest representatives and uh immediately there was immediate traction with those who were at the workshop saying you guys have outlined more much more or less the route that i took into into the into my career but i but i had an intervention at this stage and that's why i didn't go down that path and that's what helped evolve the whole the whole prevent program recognizing the importance of interventions to keep people on the right path and with crest's involvement at that stage we put together pathways and they've been involved in um in prevention initiatives since then helping publish publications around pathways around um opportunities in the in the digital world and on that premise um i was approached by um by crest 
and uh, they informed me about the the work that they're gonna that they were doing in the Gates Foundation and asked on the back of the in the the, found, the initiative of financial services for developing countries for evolving countries whether I could contribute to um, drafting a a um, a a, um, a proposal for how cyber crime prevention could be built in to any law enforcement capabilities that a country could build on the back of a national cybersecurity strategy. And um, so I drafted that, um, I started drafting that round about October and finished it round about uh, middle to last year, end of last year. And obviously, Rob, we, we, um, we spoke a lot during that period because you were drafting the proposal for actually how what a cybercrime unit would look like, could look like. Yes, and it's, I suppose, the natural sort of progression from it, wasn't it? So that initial work with the CMARD, which I have to look at it every time, the cybersecurity maturity assessment of the global ecosystem. So the CMARD, for sure, their work, obviously, um, interconnected into the cybercrime side of stuff. And as you say, they made an approach to me um, sort of back end of 20, I can't even think where we are now, 2020, 2021. Um, and again, asked me whether I'd be able to um, produce a guide which would help a country's law enforcement make some informed decisions around how they could begin to tackle the cyber threat. So it was one of those things that when you sit down and scratch your head to begin with and start thinking about it, you've said it's, 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 it's quite a wide strategy. So what I effectively set out to do was actually do a warts and all end-to-end -end guide that absolutely anybody could pick up, no matter what stage of development they may well be at, whether they've not even thought about it or whether they've actually started to develop cyber capabilities, cyber crime capabilities, and be able to give them some, some of our thoughts from the UK as to how we had approached it. And so what I ended up with was quite a comprehensive document, really, that took the reader will take the reader through a journey um, and it's not only the traditional stuff you know this isn't just talking about you know what should your team look like and what sort of training should you undergo this actually goes into much wider detail and starts talking about some moral considerations uh, what your legislative stance should be how do you work better in partnership internationally what should you be thinking about in the region of the world that you might be sat in, right through to obviously touching on the 4P strategy and some of your work, Greg, but obviously that then uh, segues into the complementary guides that you've written for it. And then right through to, you know, some uh, fundamental questions of, well, how does it work? How do you go from A to B and end up with some kind of capability from it? And I think we spoke about this to begin with. You know, this, these aren't here to instruct people what to do these are here to give people ideas you know it's it's there as a as a discussion point really to say this is how we've tackled it and it's from uh it's from experience i think is the best way of putting it it's, it's certainly written from a perspective of what what's worked in the last 10 years and some of it will be the fact that we've made the mistakes you know we've done some of that groundwork and actually, what we've put in these guides, I think that probably stands true with yourself as well, Greg, is that we've put in there stuff that seems to be um, successful and seem to be productive and certainly going in the sort of right direction. So both these guides are now complete. Um, they're both, I think, in the final stages, just with uh, press uh, getting them edited and ready for publication. So probably by the time that some of this comes out, there will be links. I'm sure that the press will be able to put on here to sort of direct to the guides. 
And I was thinking about my guy when I was publishing or doing the final sort of read-through the other day, and I think I made the point earlier that these guides, although written for law enforcement, actually there are going to be some very uh, poignant points in there which are going to be just as relevant for non-law enforcement people as they are for law enforcement. And certainly from your side, Greg, you know, the prevent side and that, that bigger, wider stuff that we spoke about with social responsibility, corporate responsibility, this is everybody's problem. Your side particularly picks up on a lot of that, doesn't it? It does, Rob. And um, yeah, that's a really nice segue into that aspect of the report I I am, um, the proposal I I am um, drafted because the, I, I laid emphasis on the consideration of having prevention actually directed as it is in the UK by the, by, by the government as a component part of an approach to a cybersecurity strategy. So it's actually um, built into the, into the into government processes that works into rehabilitative options from a, from a judicial basis so that there are tangible and credible rehabilitative options for those arrested and who have skills and abilities, that there are educational elements that are built into curriculums at the youngest ages where they are learning computer science, or even if they're not learning computer science, it might just be as part of their life skills coaches that they learn about prevention and about how the internet works and the the the, the necessity to self-police and understand your your um your engagement online and then and then having a prevent capability of some sorts interconnected with operational teams um and other 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 aspects that may be as a um, component parts of any cyber cyber crime um resource um in law enforcement and that was important to have it directed because um, if there's not a accountability in how it's implemented and how it's delivered, then it could possibly just be um, rhetoric and and and, a, and something that is said that is done, but it's not actually measured. Whereas from my experience, if you have an overarching ability or an, an overarching body that enables you to set your standards against and where you developed the prevent program over a period of time, then it does actually ensure that there's a bit of momentum um, behind your programs and also um, a level of accountability for showing some some results. So I think that that's a, a really good point that was made and it's paramount that we build those two in together so that there is a real comprehensive um, approach to dealing with cybercrime because it simply can't just be arrest capability. We all know that we need that, but we also know, based on what sort of the, the points that Rob, has drawn, Rob and I have drawn out over the last uh, few few um, few sessions and the few, last um, half hour or so, it can't just be that on its own. Yeah, no, really, really powerful point, Greg. And uh, I think the, the, the sort of bit that I would... Uh, sort of underline on that is, you know, these guides are there to help. And if you, it's anything that, 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 you know, you're involved in, whether you be government, whether you be law enforcement or whether you be, 
you know, part of larger organisations who want to sort of understand the way to implement a strategy, then I think these guides are uh, sort of essential reading. I, mean, I will say it because I was involved in writing them, but they're both, all of them are written in, all of them are written in a, in a, in a very down-to-earth way. They're not techie. They aren't. Uh, they, they, you know, they don't involve language that you won't understand. The people that have edited them, which aren't um, sort of cybercrime experts, um, have all said that they're easy to follow. Um, and I would implore you that if you've got anything to do with anything with this, then please uh, follow any of the links and get yourself over to, to have a look at the guides. And, and, and on, that, on, on that point, what, I, what is really key about the guides that's produced uh, by Rob and I is just to layer the point, they are guidance, they are not directives, they're just saying how to do it, but they also provide in many respects a fast track which enables anyone who looks to use that as a template for um, implementing their cybercrime cyber unit or, or um, the capabilities that are outlined within those two documents, anyone will be able to take it and actually benefit from years of trial and error by law enforcement in the UK and other countries, because we worked with a lot of other countries as well on jobs, and our learning and our experience and knowledge has been downloaded into those two documents and will um, definitely um, speed up any process that is um, entered, in, entered into to implement a cybercrime capability in a, in, a, in a nation or a corporation. Yeah, so ask me how I know moment, isn't it? <laughs> we know because we've been there and it's, um, yes. as Greg says, you know, that is a decade of mine and a decade of Greg's life there uh, put down in the guides. And not only us, you know, we also consulted across colleagues and, you know, other organisations as well as. Thank you for listening to the very first episode of Cybertech Talks. You can read the CMARSH Guide to Establishing an Effective Law Enforcement Cybercrime Unit at www.crest-approved.org or find a link in the podcast show notes. Greg Francis's Guide to Establishing an Effective Cybercrime Intervention Programme will be available shortly. We look forward to bringing you more episodes with cyber experts. Make sure to subscribe and follow the podcast on Twitter and LinkedIn for further updates. A big thank you to Craig Francis and Rob Harris for sharing their expertise with us. This podcast was brought to you by Crest, an international not-for-profit membership body representing the global cybersecurity industry.